0: We are back with, I think it's ep- it is episode 74, right? Yeah?
1: 74. Uh, yes, yes, yes.
0: Beautiful. Uh, even when I was reading that there, I was like, is it though? Is it 74? <laughs> We're fine. It's 74.
1: We're fine. Yeah.
0: I-, I think in a very long time, this has been the shortest amount of time between episodes.
1: Yes. How, f- it's how been, refreshing.
0: It's been maybe two weeks by the time this goes out.
1: I think so. yeah Yeah,
0: we've had a little bit more time to like do things
1: it's nice it's good it It is it's not um it's not healthy to overdo it it's not i love overdoing it i love to see the limit and think i'm gonna cross that
0: i'm gonna go right over that yeah that's completely fair enough
1: how bleeding are you how's things
0: i am good Thank you very much I don't have much exciting to report But I will need to tell you all about the gig I went to last week
1: Of course Yes Of course, please do Can we just talk
0: about that now?
1: Go for it, go for it
0: Okay, so I have said previously on this podcast That I find gigs very stressful And Mm -hmm. I still stand by that Because As I said before I just find the noise and the people Everything's just very overwhelming -hmm. And I was a bit, I was a bit shaky before it. Literally, I'm not joking. It took me an hour to stop trembling, but I got there in the end, so it was fine. (laughs) I went to see Florence and the Machine last week at the Hydro.
1: Lovely, how was it?
0: Phenomenal. So my mother got tickets, either for her birthday or Mother's Day last year. I can't quite remember because it was supposed to be last November, but poor Florence broke her foot. (laughs) Oh no! When she was doing another. Show and that too and she had to postpone it. So this was the postponed date, uh, last week. So I went off to the hydro. Coincidentally, two people from work, and we all independently of each other were all going. We all didn't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's fun. Did you well, see it them? It was
0: fun. I didn't No But um, literally, one when, when I went in that day, someone was like, "Oh, I'm off to see Florence in the Machine tonight." I was like. Florence in the Mission tonight and then she's like oh so is this other manager I was like oh my god <laughs> we're also Florence fans And um, but I got in a fantastic group of like audience people there was people dressed as witches there was flower crowns gothy floaty dresses lots of glitter some pride flags some trans flags and I was like this is a wonderful crowd of humans to be like Love it. living amongst I loved it and Florence and Machine is get quite I've got quite a personal connection to it because when they first kind of like came into the mainstream, I was in my third year at school and that's like, you know, when you're like trying to like find your identity. Like, you know mm-hmm. checks out because obviously my identity today is now like a Victorian ghost. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which is the kind of thing I want to be friends with.
0: Cute. So like <laughs> like Florence played a big part in that Because obviously very ethereal and like Sort of witchy music So there was a lot of songs that they played that like Reminded me of school so that was all very I understand how people get like People in like the 2000s Got like weepy over like 80s music that was like 20 years ago yeah. Florence's first album is coming up For like 20 years in a few years So like that's like 20 years since <sighs> like. Isn't it disgusting? Scary
1: <laughs> Yep, um, 20 but, years, oh. 20 years this year since I started high school.
0: Oh no! Oh, yep. that's awful. It's um, but at
1: least I still look as fresh as a teenager.
0: You do. You still look like a mere 18-year-old, my dear. <laughs> I don't.
1: I don't. <laughs> we're humoring me now.
0: It was inc- our seats were incredible. It was in the hydro. The hydro also stresses me out because it's quite high up. The further back you go and I don't like heights. But we were sitting in like the first little sort of tier so the seats were great and it was just a lovely like group although the one thing was we were like two in from like the aisle and at mm-hmm. the end was this couple and this lady was like seriously heavily pregnant and i was like i really oh, hope i don't need the toilet during this gig just so i don't have to ask you to stand up
1: <laughs> poor thing and I was it quite going. a sensible city downy crowd
0: it was, yes. The I like down that. the down in the floor crowd were all like quite dancy and having a good time. But like the seats were so good that none of us had to stand up. Like the people behind us were like standing up and having a dance because they had no one behind them. But behind us was like the access seats. Right. And I just I didn't want to stand up because I'm tall and in heels and I just didn't want to yeah. I was conscious of blocking people's views so but I didn't feel yeah, the, totally. like I didn't feel the need to no one in our little section was really standing because we could see so clearly but I have to say I have never been to a gig in my life that felt so much like a cult gathering
1: <laughs> Okay okay could you smell burning sage and that was honestly that kind of
0: like the vibe it gave off because Florence like came out also her set was incredible It was giving like Miss Havisham Great Expectation vibes It was like um, chandeliers and like this dinner table This like Victorian dinner table that was like shrouded in like white gauze And like oh my god it was like so my sort of thing
1: Just to interrupt you briefly Wild that you've just mentioned, mentioned Miss Havisham Because I went down a Miss Havisham hole yesterday How strange Weird I am not overly enthralled by the story of Great Expectations, but I find the character Miss Havisham so fascinating. And I might have mentioned this before that there was a, an animated version of Great Expectations that I watched as a child. Oh! And literally this morning I was able to find it on YouTube.
0: No way!
1: Yeah. And then That's I ended so up going cool. through watching all the different portrayals of Miss Havisham. Mm-hmm. I had like Helena, I had um, Gillian Anderson, I had like the, uh, the old film from the 20s oh, or 30s. Jelly and oil. I was watching them all, but just the Miss Havisham bit. Miss Havisham bit. M- yeah. Why is that so hard to say? <laughs> Miss Havisham bits.
0: Because it's so funny. Lovely. Like, I was, we were like talking about it. And I was like, Florence and the Machine very much give off this vibe that, particularly Florence amongst herself, is if in great expectations, of course, Miss Havisham is jilted and that kind of becomes her personality, basically. Um, mm. But Florence Welsh is what Miss Havisham would have become if she instead was like, "Screw that guy, I'm gonna write angsty songs about why he's an idiot."
1: <laughs> yes,
0: that is have like it's that you, kind Flo. of energy. But oh my god, she was incredible. She sounds identical to how she does in all of her records, like yeah, insane. And she was also like in the... so one of these songs of her new album, which is a song called "Dream Girl Evil," which is like and like, oh, so good. But for yeah. it, she came off the stage and she was standing on the barricade, like on the barricade at the front of the mm-hmm. crowd, and was literally like clinging on to like the crowd. And we, <laughs> it, was, it was honestly like a sermon. It was like we we're all standing, going, "Bless us, Flores." <laughs> <laughs> so it's everyone we, with holy We water. love you. And then there was like a song as well where she was like in the like in the crowd She had a lot of security with her wow. But she like ran like a lap right through like the standing crowds And was wow. like standing up with them like dancing with them And was like taking people's hands and saying to people And I was like this is like incredible This is like the best vibe at a concert I've ever been to in my life It was just amazing And the songs were like so good. Would recommend to a friend. It was just, it was incredible. Like, and also as well, see, because it was such like a safe crowd. It was such a nice group of people. Everyone was respectful of each other. Yeah. And was like there collectively as like a whole. And it was just so. Because I've been to some concerts in the past where I'm like slightly scared.
1: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You know
0: what I mean? Because it can sometimes be a scary time. But like everyone there, I was like, I don't feel like anything like bad's gonna happen here. Like everyone is just here to enjoy themselves and it was a Wednesday night, so no one was getting hammered. So.
1: <laughs> I don't really have anything exciting to report either, except I did first aid training yesterday. How exciting.
0: Oh did you find it so stressful? I'm a
1: i didn't find it too stressful but i did think i was going to vomit when they started talking about blood because oh yeah i i can watch horror films no problem if i cut myself don't worry about it but if (laughs) someone's talking about someone else in real life bleeding i start to feel really sick
0: oh no and there
1: was a lot of that There was talk of like arterial spurting. And I was like, please don't say these Uh, things when I'm in the room. I need things to be kept PG. I know it's important so I know how to handle these things. But just try to keep it chill.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: But we also suspect that the guy doing the training was a massive homophobe. I should not name names, but I'm pretty convinced. Matt and I both are pretty convinced That this guy might have been homophobic Because he didn't make eye contact with Matt or I Once Whenever we would give an answer He was very dismissive I I only spoke up twice in the whole thing And Matt spoke up quite a few times And every single time he wouldn't even look at Matt When he said something That's so bad And I was like I'm getting the impression that you're uncomfortable with us
0: (laughs) Oh my god
1: Um, I can't Because at the very beginning we talked about We did little introductions, and Matt Uh and I were next to each other, and we talked about having cats together and stuff. So, Um, yeah, not cool. Not cool. Not Not cool at all. Cool, but other than that, it was all fine. Absolutely fine. That's good. Did you
0: have to wrap each other in bandages? And
1: we did. We did a bit of that. Matt and I wrapped each other up. Did a bit of strange, uh, unsexy role play. Well. I feel like I'm a bit out of it because A, I'm not feeling particularly well. That is and B, true. what was meant to be like a two hour shift at work turned into being at work for five and a half hours. So well, my whole day has been knocked of, and I just don't know quite where I am.
0: That's fair. I'm it's already nine o'clock that. and it
1: shouldn't be. It shouldn't be yeah. nine o'clock. Do you have questions or will we just do story time?
0: I do have a question for you. It's quite a philosophical no. question though. Are you up for philosophy? Oh,
1: no. We'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs>
0: well it was that or film and i thought we could save film for like next week so yes we've not done philosophy in a while so your question is if your personality was represented by an object what would it be a cat
1: that is so intriguing i mean yeah literally (laughs) i am so
0: intrigued i think we can switch to objects in case we're struggling with one
1: that my straightaway answer mm-hmm. Because I have so many different interests And I have my yeah. finger in so many different pies mm-hmm. I imagine myself as a candelabra
0: Oh, that's a good answer
1: Maybe even a menorah I mean, I'm not Jewish So I'm not going to appropriate it But I've got lo- I'm holding lots of pots and pans No, wait I'm holding lots of things in uh-huh. my mind at all times And, and candelabras hold lots of candles especially menorahs they've got plenty and mm-hmm. so i feel like that's how i feel that was my instinct
0: that's a very good answer thank you wow but i
1: also feel deeply rooted in tradition i feel mm-hmm. very close and rooted to my family and again because there's lots of different little buds of interest i felt like i could be a houseplant.
0: Oh, that's very apt for you, considering you do cultivate a fair few of them in your flat. So I
1: do. I have a propagation station. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. You do. Um, what about yourself? If you were an objet,
0: so a couple of a couple of come to mind. I must admit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think definitely one of them would be like a very intricate, like. Bone china cup and saucer with a little Lovely. Earl Grey tea in it. I think love it. that kind of like sums up my sort of love of the vintage and like the yoldy fashioned and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And I also think a big pile of like historic gothic books with like sort of dusty pages and all all that sort of stuff because. I've I've very I like I like my old fashioned stuff and the sort of connection of like the past to the present and stuff like that. So I feel like that would be my sort of very stereotypical for this podcast, but here we are.
1: I mean, it's pretty standard. I mean, you can get pretty gothic candelabras.
0: That is very true. That's very true.
1: And I love to sing. And if you think of, Lumiere, and you know, it's so Beauty funny. I East, was like, I was like literally. Candelabra.
0: Uh-huh. I was like trying to make a connection to Lumiere in my head and I was like, I can't think of one quick enough.
1: <laughs> the fact I literally do musical theatre and love to cook. Yeah. Um, <laughs> although he doesn't really cook. He wouldn't be able to do very much apart from roast a marshmallow.
0: He doesn't. He's very much the hostess with the mostess.
1: He is. He is. Well.
0: Excellent stuff. Should we move on shall to story we? time?
1: Let's do it. Um, I believe I might be first this week
0: I think you are
1: Well are you in for a treat? Yes you are Last week I don't remember if I took it out of the podcast or not but I did say I promised to cover a story that had come to mind during Hannah's story and that is the story of Edgar Allan Poe Yes. Because I find the mystery surrounding his death quite fascinating It's very
0: so, weird isn't yeah, is that? Such... Because he was a very weird human being.
1: If you're going to be weird in life, you may as well go out weird.
0: Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. This all stemmed from the fact I was trying to make you watch The Pale Blue Eye, which I presume you have not watched in the preceding two weeks. No. No. There's a show I okay. have
1: meant to, and I've brought <laughs> it up a few times, but we haven't actually, we genuinely haven't been in and watched anything. That's completely ages. fair.
0: Still would recommend to a friend, so
1: we will we absolutely will cover it I promise um so let's just dive in so there's a lot of stuff a lot of information about Edgar Allan Poe out there uh but he some of it was quite boring so he did he did a lot of like military service type stuff he He did did,
0: which is what the film is about
1: (laughs) what, what lovely I'll find that out he did a lot of um journalism and reviewing and stuff like that didn't necessarily think that he was involved in that much because you just think Edgar Allan Poe just sits in an armchair with a smoking jacket and tells yeah. nice stories by the fireplace that's yeah. all you think of maybe a pet raven on his shoulder why not but alas he actually had a life he did <laughs> so uh, that was interesting however I've tried to keep as much of that out of this as possible because there was so much of it and so much of dotting around different professions yeah. and stuff that I started to get really bored by the man. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> Edgar. I don't think he's ever been like, too called boring in his life. <laughs> I was
1: like, I just don't want to know about how many times you changed newspaper. Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, also, this is probably one of our... Um, Gothic Icon series.
0: That is true, yes, we continue.
1: We continue the saga.
0: Yeah, making it number four.
1: Edgar Allan Poe is widely regarded as a central figure of romanticism in the United States and of American literature. He was one of the country's earliest practitioners of the short story and considered the inventor of the detective fiction genre, as well as a significant contributor to the emerging genre of science fiction. Not my fave. He is the first well-known American writer to earn a living through writing alone, resulting in a financially difficult life and career. Edgar Poe was born in Boston, Massachusetts, on January 19th, 1809, the second child of American actor David Poe Jr. and English-born actress Elizabeth Arnold Hopkins Poe. <sighs> Her name's a lot. I hope she just went by (laughs) Liz Poe, because that's so much easier. (laughs) He had an elder brother, William, and a younger sister, Rosalie, which is a name I really like.
0: It's a good name. It's a strong name.
1: It's a very nice name. Their grandfather, David Poe, had emigrated from Country Cavan in Ireland around 1750. His father abandoned the family in 1810, and his mother died a year later from consumption. Poe was then taken into the home of John Allen, a successful merchant in Richmond, Virginia, who dealt with a variety of goods, including cloth, wheat, tombstones, tobacco and slaves. Mm. Mm. I found the tombstones interesting, found the slaves a little much.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. People are not property.
1: Mm -mm -mm. The Allens served as a foster family and gave him the name Edgar Allan Poe. Although they never formally adopted him. The Allen family had Joe baptised into the Episcopal Church in 1812. John Allen alternately spoiled and aggressively disciplined his foster son. The family oh. sailed to the United Kingdom. Co- yes, get a balance. Mm. Okay. <laughs> get a nice balance the family sailed to the United Kingdom in 1815 and Joe attended the grammar school for a short period in Irvine in Ayrshire there you go yes yeah, so he was indeed in Scotland and was there I think till he was about six
0: because when I, cause I read that recently as well because I did go down a bit of an Alan Poe hole and I read that, that he just casually went to school in Scotland and I was like what the hell. Again, never did I think, much like Washington Irving, did I ever think that Edgar Allan Poe ever made it to Scotland <laughs> in Yeah, his lifetime.
1: It's weird how, it's some, how they come flocking, come flocking.
0: They do.
1: Uh, but he jo- rejoined his family in London in 1816. Okay. Joe moved with the Allens back to Richmond in 1820. And he may have become engaged to childhood love Sarah Elmira Royster before he registered at the University of Virginia in February 1826, where he studied ancient and modern languages. The university was in its infancy established on the ideals of its founder, Thomas Jefferson, and it had strict rules against gambling, horses, guns, tobacco and alcohol. But these rules were mostly ignored, of course, because it's university. (laughs) (laughs) Jefferson enacted a system of student self-government, allowing students to choose their own studies, make their own arrangements for boarding and report all wrongdoing to the faculty. The unique system was still in chaos and there was a high dropout rate. During his time there, Poe lost touch with Royster and also became estranged from his foster father over gambling debts. This relationship never was really repaired, so much so that he wasn't alerted that his foster mother was dying and he only returned home the day after her death because he didn't know that it was happening. There was a slightly more complicated relationship there with his uh, foster father Mm -hmm. but it kind of went to and fro for a while and eventually it did just die out. It just stopped being a thing. Poe gave up on the university after a year but did not feel welcome returning to Richmond, especially when he learned that his love, Royster, had married another man. He travelled to Boston in April 1827, sustaining himself with odd jobs as a clerk and newspaper writer and starting to use the pseudonym Henry Lorenet during this period. Mm. Unable to support himself, he enlisted in the United States Army as a private on May 27th, 1827, using the name Edgar A. Perry. He claimed that he was 22 years old, even though he was only 18, and he was discharged on the 15th of April after purposely revealing his real age. He was like, I'm out, I'm 18, <laughs> and I had to then leave. He moved to Baltimore for a time to stay with his widowed aunt, Maria Clem, and her daughter, Virginia Elise Clem, which was Poe's first cousin. His brother, Henry, was there, and his invalid grandmother, Elizabeth Cairns, Poe, was also there. In September of that year, Poe received the very first words of encouragement he ever remembered hearing in a review of his poetry by influential critic John Neal prompting Poe to dedicate one of the poems to Neil in his second book, Al-Araf, Tamerlin and Minor Poems, published in 19- 1829. It's not a title that flows off the tongue.
0: No, it's not very catchy.
1: Poe left for New York in February 1831 and released a third volume of poems, simply titled Poems. The book was financed with help from his fellow cadets at West Point many of whom donated 75 cents to the cause, raising a total of $170. The book included a page saying, quote, To the US Corps of Cadets, this volume is respectfully dedicated. Poe returned to Baltimore to his aunt, brother and cousin in March 1831, and by this point his elder brother had become ill because of problems with alcoholism, and he died on the 1st of August 1831. The demon
0: drink strikes again.
1: Demon drink coming for you. After his early attempts at poetry, Poe had turned his attention to prose. He placed a few stories in a Philadelphia publication and began work on his only drama, Polition. Poe became assistant editor to the Southern Literary Messenger in August 1835, but was discharged within a few weeks for being drunk on the job. Mm. He returned to Baltimore, where he obtained a licence to marry his cousin, Virginia, on September 22nd, 1835. Though it is unknown if they actually got married at that time. Because at this point, he was 26 and she was 13. Mm. Mm -mm. Do the maths. (laughs) That's twice her age. That's
0: so icky It's
1: so gross It's so gross That's because uh, uh,
0: that's like That covers two bases Marrying a minor Marrying a blood relative Both big no-nos
1: <laughs> Big Big no-nos But different times The 1800s It's true Different times well, Poe was reinstated At the job he had at, the, at a Philadelphia publication After promising to behave And he went back to Richmond With Virginia and her mother he remained at that paper until 1837 and it was in 1836 that he and Virginia held a proper Presbyterian wedding ceremony performed by Amasa Conversa at the Richmond Boarding House with a witness falsely attesting to Clem's age, saying that she was 21 when she was not. <laughs> um, because at this point she would have been 14.
0: Oh, well that's fine then. That's that's alright
1: So they don't know if he got the licence to marry her And then just postponed until this point Or if they had married beforehand Not sure
0: Not cool Not cool Edgar
1: No 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 One evening in January 1842 Virginia showed the first signs of consumption Whilst singing and playing the piano While Poe described Which Poe described as Breaking a blood vessel in her throat She only partially recovered and Poe began to drink more heavily under the stress of her illness. And it was three years after this, in 45, where Poe's poem, The Raven, first appeared in the evening mirror and became a popular sensation. However, despite making Poe a household name, he was only ever paid $9 for the publication. Oh! So for being probably his most famous work.
0: Yeah, yeah. It only actually got
1: him $9 in his life.
0: Oh, that would have got him two cups of coffee.
1: Two wee cups. So eventually in 46, Poe moved to a cottage in the Bronx. That is now known as Edgar Allan Poe Cottage. However, it was relocated in later years to a park near the south... East corner of the Grand Concourse and Kingsbridge Road, and it was on January thirtieth, eighteen forty-seven, that Virginia died at that very cottage. Oh, so in a frightening case of coincidence, his biological mother, elder brother Henry, and his wife all died at the age of twenty-four.
0: That's a very unusual
1: coincidence. Isn't it? So his mum died in 1811, his brother died in 1847, and now Virginia Clay and Poe had died. But all of them were 24 at the times of their death. Hmm. It has been theorised that Poe ventured into dark themes of romanticism because of the numerous personal tragedies that befell him. It was only natural that he would develop a knack for using a lot of themes about death particularly about death and pretty women, perhaps it was his way of dealing with the momentous loss that he suffered. Especially when thinking of his mum and his, his wife. Yeah yeah. Slash yeah. cousin, slash child. <laughs> anyway <laughs> She let's not dwell. She was twenty-four at the time. It's fine.
0: <laughs> Funnily enough though, like you're talking about like his mum and stuff like that. In- The Pale Blue Eye There is like a whole bit Where he talks about That he believes He's still being like Haunted By like his mother's spirit And like his mother's spirit Like Talks to him and like Kind of Inspires him and tells him What to write and Stuff like that So I I think Again I think It was partially fictionalized But I could easily believe That to be true I think he was very like Into his spirits And
1: that sort of stuff In more ways than one He loved booze. It may well be that in his slightly drunken state, he maybe did genuinely feel like he was being visited by his mum, so felt like he wanted to write stories about these beautiful women being faced with death. Yeah,
0: I think he was like one of these people that was always kind of sort of perpetually a bit tipsy.
1: Yeah, I reckon he stank. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like someone who just smells like stale booze. I think that's yeah. He he smelled like a bar mat. He did. (laughs) not fun not fun a soggy coaster
0: oh no oh edgar
1: okay okay so poe's best known fiction works are of course gothic horror adhering to the genre's conventions to appeal to the public taste his most recurring themes were things like death including its physical signs the effects of decomposition concerns of premature burial the reanimation of the dead and, of course, the process of mourning.
0: A little, like, reading for all involved. Yeah, do you know what I mean?
1: Keep it chill. (laughs) Poe's work owes much of the concern of Romanticism with the occult and the satanic. It owes much also to his own feverish dreams to which he applied a rare faculty of shaping plausible fabrics out of impalpable materials. So he'd be having these, like, spooky-wooky dreams, probably high off his face or on acid (laughs) or something and uh, he was able to make these stories out of these things that are kind of imperceivable
0: Uh.
1: with an air of objectivity and spontaneity his productions are closely dependent on his own powers of imagination and an elaborate writing technique his keen and sound judgment as an appraiser of contemporary literature his idealism and musical gift as a poet his dramatic art as a storyteller, considerably, considerably appreciated in his lifetime, secured him a prominent place among universally known men in the world. So he had so many strings to his bow that made him a fascinating person, but also a like a good, solid writer. Yeah. The outstanding fact in Poe's character is a strange duality. The wide divergence of contemporary judgments on the man seems almost to point to the coexistence of two persons within himself, much like a Gemini. There you go. Or, as Nadine Coyle would say, a Gemini. I thoroughly (laughs) enjoy that. Have you seen that clip? I have. I love it. (laughs) With those he loved, he was gentle and devoted and to others who were the butt of his sharp criticism, found him irritable and self-centred and went so far to, as to accuse him of lack of principle. It was, it has been asked, a double of the man rising from harrowing nightmares or from the haggard inner visions of dark crimes or from appalling graveyard fantasies that loomed in Poe's unstable being. That sentence made no sense, but whatever, we're staying in... Much of Poe's best work is concerned with terror and sadness, but in ordinary circumstances the poet was a pleasant companion. He talked brilliantly, chiefly of literature, and read his own poetry and that of others in a voice of surpassing beauty. He admired Shakespeare and Alexander Pope. He had a sense of humour, apologising once to a visitor for not keeping a pet raven, as one might expect i mean fair yes so this is like reading this bit i was like wait he had a personality beyond being spooky spooky. because it's kind of funny you just don't think of him as a he himself feels like a character
0: you just look like you look at like right, paul sorry mate right, but he was a weird looking human but he looked weird he did so looking at him you're like well you look like a character from a gothic horror <laughs> he absolutely does you look like one if someone had said to me oh no he wrote farces i was like did he though
1: was he really into farce was he
0: did he though? did he really like (laughs) jolly little comedies you look at him and you're going oh you definitely wrote about death half the time so
1: (laughs) but so much so that it gave him big bags under his eyes
0: that is true and he really needed to run a comb
1: through his hair yeah he was quite messy but it's yeah. the drink. He had an unsteady it's hand. The drink. It's, it's the steady. drink. As a critic, Poe laid great stress upon correctness of language, meter and structure. He formulated rules for the short story in which he sought the ancient unities, i.e. the short story should relate a complete action and take place within one day in one place. Poe, admi- I never really thought of that before, that for a concise, a good concise short story, it should really be... Uh-huh. Confined.
0: Yeah. By could, time and yeah. space.
1: Never really thought about it. But then I don't write short stories, so never had to think about it. Mm. Poe admired originality, often in work very different from his own, and was sometimes an unexpectedly generous critic of decidedly minor writers. Beyond horror, Poe did write satires, humor tales, oh, and okay. hoaxes. For comic effect, he used irony and ludicrous extravagance, often in an attempt to liberate the reader from cultural conformity. And here's a word I was dreading. Metzingerstein is the first story that Poe is known to have published, and his first foray into horror. But it was originally intended as a burlesque satirizing satirizing the popular (laughs) genre. Poe wrote much of his work using themes aimed specifically at mass market tastes. And it worked, because he's still sticking about. Exactly. So Edgar left Richmond, Virginia on September 27th, 1849. He had been on a three-month lecture tour to a few cities in order to raise funds and promote the new magazine he planned to start up. From Virginia, he intended to travel back to New York via Baltimore and then Philadelphia, where he would edit a collection of Mrs St. Leon Loud's poems. Once he reached New York he would gather up his aunt who lived with Poe and the two of them would move to Richmond to be with Poe's new fiance. His first stop was in Baltimore where he arrived on the 28th of September. Soon after arriving he checked some luggage into a hotel called the Swan Tavern. Perhaps this stop was merely an extension of his lecture tour, but for some reason, he didn't mention it to anyone. If he was leaving on a Philadelphia train soon after he arrived in Baltimore, i.e. he wasn't spending the night or any significant amount of time there, then why did he check in his luggage? Was there something in Baltimore that caused him to change his plans? Alternatively, Baltimore may have been in his plans from the start, but for some reason, he felt the need to keep it a secret. After arriving in Baltimore, Poe disappeared for five days from September 28th to October 3rd. That period of Poe's life is a complete blank. Nobody has any idea what was happening in those five days.
0: That's like big old Agatha Christie.
1: Isn't it? When you did the Agatha Christie story, this is what was going through my mind. I was like, whoa, what is it with oh, writers just disappearing?
0: Just disappearing.
1: Uh, but on the 3rd of October, a local printer by the name of Joseph Walker found Poe. The writer was either inside Ryan's Fourth Ward polling tavern, which was both a bar and a polling place, which sounds like a terrible idea. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which was also known as Gunners Hall, or just outside the bar room on the street. On that day, there were elections taking place within the polling hall. Poe was, at this point, fairly incoherent, but managed to tell the printer his name and asked him to call an an acquaintance living within the city. So Joseph Walker quickly sent the following message to Poe's friend, Dr. J.E. Snodgrass, in Baltimore. Dear Sir, there is a gentleman, rather the worse for wear, at Ryan's fourth ward, Poles, who goes under the cognomen of Edgar A. Pole, and who appears in great distress. And he says he is acquainted with you, and I assure you he is in need of immediate assistance. Yours in haste, Joss W. Walker. Dr. Snodgrass called Poe's uncle, Henry Herring, who also lived in Baltimore, and the two of them went along to collect the delirious Poet. When Dr. Snodgrass arrived, he was shocked to see what Poe looked like. His face was haggard, not to say bloated and unwashed. His hair was unkempt and his whole physique repulsive. This is genuine quotes about how they described him. Charming. His expansive forehead and that full, orbed and mellow yet soulful eye for which he was so noticeable when himself was now lustreless and vacant. I don't want those two people to describe me on a bad day. I know, right? <laughs> Snodgrass and Herring took Poe to Washington College Hospital probably around 5pm where he fell in and out of consciousness. Dr. John Joseph Moran was the attending physician on duty and continued to treat and monitor Poe until his death. Unfortunately, the doctor did not allow family or friends to visit Poe in his excitable state, and thus the poet died alone on October 7th. Dr Moran indicated that in Poe's final days, he repeatedly called out for somebody named Reynolds. The identity of Reynolds has never been determined, although several possibilities have been put forth. If Poe was so delirious that he was confusing reality with fiction, he may have been referring to Jeremiah Reynolds, who was the probable inspiration for a character in Poe's novel, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. Another terrible title. He needs to (laughs) work on that. The Raven is so snappy. You know what that's about.
0: And you know there's going to be a raven in it.
1: Yes. Do I need to know that man's from Nantucket? I don't know. I've not read it, but maybe. (laughs) Although um, another line of thought involves Henry R. Reynolds, who was a Baltimore carpenter. More oh. importantly, he was the election judge in the fourth ward voting polls at the, z- at the exact location where Joseph Walker found Poe. Others believe that Poe was not saying Reynolds at all, but he was calling for his Baltimore relative, Henry Herring. In his faltering state, Poe may not have been able to say the man's name clearly. Ultimately, the conjecture has led nowhere and the mystery of Reynolds continues. In 1875, 26 years after the death of Edgar Allan Poe, Dr Moran wrote an article for the New York Herald called Official Memoranda of the Death of Edgar A. Poe. Poe, said Poe. In it, he claimed that Poe's last words were, The arched heavens encompass me and God has his decree legibly written upon the frontlets of every created human being and demons incarnate. Their goal will be the seething waves of blank despair. Many people doubt Moran's credibility as there are countless inconsistencies in that article. Also, Poe was supposedly barely lucid. Yeah, that's quite a lot of words. Quite floaty, quite f- floaty to tooty but yeah. yeah, I doubt it. He probably just said, oh, I feel rotten. And then, yeah. At Poe's funeral the very next day, the crowd was sparse. There were members of the Herring family and a cousin of Poe's, late wife Virginia. He was buried at Baltimore's Westminster Hall and Burying Ground. And in October 1875, Poe was reburied in a more prominent spot with a monument over his grave. The few details about his death have left more questions than answers. Many people speculate that he was a victim of cooping, Baltimore. Was known as Mob Town because of the murders and intimidation tactics various gangs would use during election time. Quote For days before an election, honest gentlemen as well as unfortunate wretches, many of them immigrants, would be abducted by the gangs and transported to cellars or sheds known as coops, where they would be held under conditions described by one victim as disgusting and horrible in the extreme. Sometimes forced to drink large quantities of whiskey, the hapless captives were invariably robbed and beaten before being transported to the polls in small groups to vote and vote again. Captors may have changed the clothes of their victims so that election officials were less likely to detect the same man voting more than once, and this might explain how Poe met his end although a Baltimore journalist wrote the following day that the elections passed off quite harmoniously and there was no disturbance at the polls anywhere. The police docket had indicated a dull day of business as well. The local gangs held immense power in the city and naturally few people spoke out against the mob. So actually, who knows? Who knows? Others believe Poe may have been physically beaten by street ruffians or even brothers of Poe's fiance. They may not have wanted their sisters to become involved with an alcoholic pauper. This theory does not, however, explain the disappearance of his clothes. It was well known that Poe had a problem with alcohol. Very little of it got him absolutely blotted off his face. Despite his recent pledge to swear off liquor at this point in time, it is possible that Poe may have taken to drinking again. Some people wonder if he could have swapped his formal clothes for money and used and, uh, and got cheap secondhand clothes as well. Yeah. Recent experiments on samples of Poe's hair indicate that he probably was not drinking alcohol at the time of his death. Additionally, Dr. Moran stated that Poe was not drunk when they admitted the ill man. Mm. An overdose of drugs can most likely be ruled out. Thomas Dunn, English, a politician, knew Poe and stated that had Poe the opium, ha- opium habit when I knew him, I should both, as a physician and a man of observation, have discovered it during his frequent visits to my rooms my visits to his house, or our meetings elsewhere. I saw no signs of it and believed the charge to be a baseless slander. A fairly recent theory states that Poe may have had an aggressive brain tumour that caused hallucinations and delirium. Other scholars have posited medical causes of death, such as influenza, suicide, hypoglycemia, diabetes, syphilis, epilepsy, or even rabies. But really, Uh, it may forever just be a mystery. Who knows? Yes. Immediately after Poe's death, his literary rival, Rufus Wilmot Griswold, wrote a slanted high-profile obituary under a pseudonym filled with falsehoods that cast Poe as a lunatic. The long obituary appeared in the New York Tribune, signed Ludwig, on the day that Poe was buried. It was soon further published throughout America. The piece began, quote, Edgar Allan Poe is dead. He died in Baltimore the day before yesterday. This announcement will startle many, but few will be grieved by it. Ludwig.
0: That's like when Betty Davis was phoned for a quote regarding Joan Crawford's death.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, she was brutal.
0: And was like, what was it? It was like, oh, I can't remember what it is.
1: Um, Bear with, I can't remember either. Oh, she said, you should never say bad things about the dead, only good. Joan Crawford is dead. Good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's that same kind of energy.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. she was brutal. So eventually, Ludwig was identified as Griswold, an editor, critic and anthologist who had g- borne a grudge against Poe since 1842. Griswold somehow became Poe's literary executor and attempted to destroy his enemy's reputation after his death. Griswold also wrote a biographical article of Poe called Memoir of the Author, which he included in an 1850 volume of the collected works. There, he depicted Poe as a depraved, drunken, drug-addled madman and included Poe's letters as evidence. Many of his claims were either lies or distortions, And Griswold's book was denounced by those who knew Poe well, including Joan Neal, who published an article defending Poe and attacking Griswold as a Radamanthus. A Radamanthus is the son of Zeus and Europa, the brother of Minos, who as a ruler and judge in the underworld was renowned for his justice. Oh. There you are. Griswold's book was nevertheless a popularly accepted biographical source. This was in part because it was the only full biography available and was widely reprinted, and in part because readers thrilled at the thought of reading works by an evil man. Letters that Griswold presented as proof were later revealed as forgeries. So I wonder if the perception we have of Poe of being a bit out there and a bit Yeah quirky and stuff is actually largely because of that one biography.
0: It is possible.
1: That he's maybe been spoken about in such a way for such a long time that it's become true
0: yeah, because I think also as well, like what you're talking, there's not much because he wasn't as prolific in his own time as he is now, there wasn't much contemporary writings about him as a person yeah, like and from his writing alone, and I know you can like go into like separating the art from the author and all that kind of stuff, but from his writing alone, you're it checks like you go. He was weird. Checks out. Yeah, <laughs> Have you totally. Seen what he totally. Wrote?
1: <laughs> it just seems appropriate that he was a cookie cat.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, but maybe he wasn't. Maybe we don't actually really know what he was truly like because we've had it distorted for us. Oh, there's probably other yeah. other accounts from other people saying that he was a bit of a cookie cat, but um, I mean his photo still makes him look like an oddball. But yeah. Which is fine.
0: that's a good word for him.
1: (laughs) Um, Okay, so Edgar Allan Poe's death is still shrouded in mystery. The last chapter of his life is as perplexing and gothic as many of his tales. And it appears that we will never have a satisfactory conclusion. Unfortunately, but fortunately in his death, his words live on. Quote, Then in my childhood in the dawn of a most stormy life, was drawn from every depth of good and ill the mystery which binds me still. And that's the story of Edgar Allan Poe and his mysterious death.
0: Ooh! Oh, see, yes. this is annoying, though, because it's just going to continue my current Poe obsession, <laughs> which isn't <Yeah>. good.
1: <laughs> I'm glad Although that you're I having will... a Poe, a Poe hole dive.
0: Well, that's... Thank you. But I will be honest, though, <laughs> the irony is sense about saying that. 'Cause I do find him a very fascinating like character and stuff like that. But I appreciate his work because it is like incredible. Not that I don't like his work, but I wouldn't go to his work like yeah. as first choice. Cause I actually do find it really disturbing.
1: Yeah. I, I haven't do, read like, an awful lot of his stuff, to be honest. I've yeah. read The Raven and mm-hmm. a couple of others, I think, but not many.
0: Some of his like stuff. Is genuinely really quite disturb, like disturbing stuff. Like it's it's pretty deep, and even some of it's a bit too like <laughs> a bit too much for me. Yeah. Um. Because I I always remember as a child, uh, we were watching some documentary on the TV about horror cinema because of course we were, and um I remember they were talking about an adaptation of The Pit and the Pendulum, which is a Poe story. Yeah, I'm sure. And that scared the absolute bejesus out of me. Like, that alone. It's just, yeah, some of it's pretty intense. Like, I quite like The Fall of the House of Usher, quite like that one. Apparently, that's getting a new adaptation soon.
1: What, was that not Mike Flanagan?
0: I think so, maybe. Yeah, so, like, I find that quite interesting. But, yeah, some, some of his stuff is really very dark. And I'm like, hmm, I'll pass on. On that thank you, um' cause, yeah he he had quite a twisted a twisted mind, but but yeah it's it's very fitting that Poe went out of this world as he kind of lived in it, like
1: yeah, with a wee bit of mystery and, and a wee bit he of spoke about darkness,
0: yeah. yeah, um, but yeah, it's very intriguing, so well done and hold holding out in your promise,
1: thank you i Never I try not to let people die.
0: There you go. So your next your next job is to watch the film on Netflix so we can will. then talk about that. There you I go.
1: Absolutely will.
0: I'm currently um, reading the book at the minute. I managed okay. to track down a copy of it and it's good but very wordy. Very okay. wordy. Okay. Um it's kind of written as an eighteen thirties book and it's like that thick. And I'm like, oh
1: Is that nice? I've committed
0: to I've committed to it now, though, so I have to see it through. So I am going to be talking about a Scottish person today. We love them. And this is quite apt to what we've been talking about, so that's quite nice. Um, so, Osborne Henry Maver was born in Glasgow on the 3rd of January, 1888. His father, Henry Alexander Maver, was an electrical engineer and industrialist, and the younger Maver arguably had a good schooling. So he attended the Glasgow Academy in the affluent West End. Yes, lovely times for him before attending the University of Glasgow just down the road from the old Glasgow Academy, um, where he studied medicine. Of course Like every other Victorian man Before him But (laughs) he went against the trend of going to Edinburgh So we can applaud him for that
1: (laughs) Well done, well done sir
0: Well done him Uh, So after the outbreak of the First World War in 1914 Maver served in the Royal Army Medical Corps before, um, And he was posted At both Flanders And what was then called Mesopotamia The region includes what we know today as Iraq and Syria and okay. Iran, that kind of um, neck of the woods. So post-war, he began work as a general practitioner before becoming a consultant physician at the Royal Infirmary, and he was also a professor of medicine at the Anderson College at the University of Glasgow. Now, I don't think the Anderson College of medicine exists anymore, and actually, I think the building that I think it is. Is in the process of being demolished oh. I think It's the one on Byers Road You know how in Byers Road They've built like the new university buildings But there's like an old building next to it I think it was that building
1: Yeah that area area's going through quite a bit of demolition Right now
0: Yeah yeah. so I think it was in that area Going by the images that I found um, So Mr Maver is renowned For being a great talent In his field But did you know that it's not the realm of medicine that brought fame to his name?
1: I didn't know that because I've never heard of the boy.
0: (laughs) Well, funny you should say that because do you know, the name he is best known by isn't actually his real one.
1: Oh, can I make a stab?
0: Are you going to give a guess?
1: So because of what his dad did, did that influence what he became famous for? Electrical electrical engineer. Electrical engineer. No. Oh, well, it's probably not him then.
0: Maver is perhaps best known as James Bridie, and he was a prolific Scottish playwright.
1: Yes.
0: You might have heard this name. So it is believed he composed his first dramatic work in 1911, and it was entitled The Switchback, and this initial work commented on medical ethics, which is a theme he would revisit in his later works. It is during the interwar years does Bridie's work rise to prominence, beginning with the first professional performance of one of his works in 1928, and that was the Sunlight Sonata, which is a lovely name. And 1931 sees the performance of his play The Anatomist, which was a comic play uh, commenting once again on the ethical minefield that is medical practice. And it actually used the crimes of Birkin hair to do so.
1: Who better to use than the boys there you down go. the road?
0: <laughs> there you go. So just a classic wee comedy about Birkin hair there, you know, because that's really <laughs> cheery stuff.
1: If you can't laugh, you'll cry.
0: Well, that's true. Um, so Brady would also adapt tales from the Bible, giving them contemporary readings. And plays of this nature included Tobias and the Angel and Jonah and the Whale.
1: Yawn fest.
0: <laughs> Less interesting than the Birkenhair <laughs> stuff, yeah. You know? I agree.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Although whales are good.
1: I do like a whale.
0: Would you like whales? Uh, so Brady's plays were noted for their sharp wit and societal observation, but he could also turn his hand to far more sinister themes. Challenging his audiences to think Philosophically and to make peace With his presented unresolved Endings so he did Very much kind of like challenge The kind of playwriting norm
1: Yeah he had a big cliffhanger I do enjoy a cliffhanger
0: Yeah, Exactly so Brady also saw Some of Britain's greatest acting talent Perform his works Artists including Laurence Olivier Alistair Sim and Robert Donat All appearing in productions of His work
1: like Lauren to live here no less
0: There you go Exactly So Brady chose to write under a pseudonym As he felt being a playwright Would not lend legitimacy To his separate career as a general practitioner <laughs> So
1: I mean I'm pr- sure that Doctors were probably wildly busy at the time That's crazy that he had time to be a playwright As well
0: Exactly yeah that was literally he. So he had like just this play, whole playwriting Thing going on as like a side gig and was like still being a GP on the daily, but wouldn't tell anyone because they thought, well, if it, because he's like, oh well, if I say that I write theatre, they're not gonna take me seriously. <laughs> As a doctor. So But despite reportedly almost taking a decade to gain his degree in medicine, I was reading a little bio about Brady on um the Glasgow Uni website, and he failed a few classes a couple of times. So it took him a little longer <laughs> to get his medical degree. Um, but he instead turned his back on the GP life and he instead devoted his time entirely to Scottish theatre. So he made the leap that all artists do.
1: It's the seriously. same story as me almost.
0: There you go. Um, so the writer also found himself uh, writing for the camera in the 1940s as he worked with horror and suspense cinema icon Alfred Hitchcock.
1: Nice
0: Yeah So he aided in the writing of films Under Capricorn uh, Which was released in 1949 And Stage Fright In 1950 Uh, The latter film was also Co-authored with Hitchcock's wife And noted collaborator Alma Revel Who was a cinema icon In her own right What a gal She was badass We love you Alma Mm. She was like Pretty incredible uh, in, her, in her own way So um, Might talk about her one day, you never know <clears throat> So it also became Something of a family affair This connection with Scottish theatre As his son Ronald was a playwright As well as drama critic For Scotsman, director of the Scottish Arts Council and deputy Chairman of the Edinburgh Festival So the family all, all Got involved Bridie's greatest legacy to the city However, and in the world of Scottish theatre was a rather unassuming building near the banks of the River Clyde. On the south bank of the River Clyde sits the Gorbals, once a densely overpopulated and severely impoverished area in Glasgow City Centre. We have visited there before a couple of times on the podcast, and it really was not a nice place to live back in the day. There was, there was vampires a lot of... with big steely teeth. There was there was vampires with big steel teeth, Um But yeah, it wasn't a pleasant time. It was effectively a slum district in in Glasgow for most of its existence. Um, But a theatre had been built there in 1878, which was called Her Majesty's Theatre and Royal Opera House. So, getting both the names in there. (laughs) So it was designed by architects James Sellers and Campbell Douglas. The former is known for other Glasgow buildings, such as the Victoria Infirmary. And, ironically enough, the Anderson College of Medicine, which is the very place that Bridie lectured as a professor. So, there you go. So, did you know that this theatre, the original Her Majesty's, was the first theatre on the south side of the city?
1: Oh, bringing the arts to the community.
0: Absolutely. Yep, so all the other theatres had all been built in the city centre. So, it was the first one that was actually the opposite side of the Clyde, so, big deal. Um, But she was quickly joined by a few neighbours and they were the Palace, the Colosseum and the Lyceum. Her Majesty's was also renamed to the Royal Princesses Theatre in the December of 1879. Architects, Sellers and Douglas were contemporaries of Alexander Greek Thompson, who was an eminent Scottish architect known for his use of techniques as seen in the ancient buildings of Greece and Egypt. So... Lots of straight lines, lots of columns That sort of thing The royal princess held 2,500 patrons It was big um, And was famed for her pillared facade Each topped with a statue So these six figures Were William Shakespeare, Robert Burns And the Four Muses Love that Yeah, it's in the early 20th, in its early 20th Century life, the company that was Housed at the royal princesses Would call the Garble-based theatre their home before taking their productions out to other venues around Scotland. So this is when we're kind of getting into our rep touring rep theatre. So they have like a base, but then they'll go out to like smaller communities. It was in 1944 did manager Henry McKelvey announce his intention to retire. So the Royal Princess would need a new resident company. The lease to the theatre was offered to the newly formed Citizens Company Their home was the Athenaeum Theatre on Buchanan Street Which is now Glasgow's Hard Rock Cafe It's a very pretty Hard Rock Cafe I've never it, it been has, in. Oh, You've never been in? No Oh, it's so cool And you can tell it was a theatre Like, they've oh, kept you? quite a lot of the original, like, oh, nice. stuff You can get a vague idea of, like, how it, how it looked so the founding of the Citizens Theatre Company Had been led by Brady and Dr. Tom Honeyman So we have actually mentioned this man previously uh, We previously explored Honeyman's dealings With surrealist painter Salvador Dali And his procuring of the work Christ of St. John and the Cross Which was not that very many episodes ago Because we haven't done a lot in that time So... <laughs> <laughs> It was recorded a long time ago, but it's not that many far back if you're looking for it. So their intention was to provide live theatre for the citizens of Glasgow, taking its name from a tenant in the Glasgow Repertory Theatre's 1909 manifesto, and I quote, The Repertory Theatre is Glasgow's own theatre. It is a citizen's theatre in the fullest sense of the term. Established to make Glasgow independent from London for its dramatic supplies, it produces plays which the Glasgow playgoers would otherwise not have the opportunity of seeing. So the Royal Princess's Theatre opened as Glasgow's Citizens Theatre on the 11th of September,
1: 1945. Lovely. I love there
0: that you theatre. Gosh, she is a one. So writers that featured in the Citizens' first rep included Bridie himself, J.B. Priestley of an Inspector Calls fame. Yes. Yep. Peter Ustinov, who is also best known for being Poirot in some films. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Robert McClellan. And a wee guy called J.M. Barry.
1: (gasps) Big J.M. I love him.
0: Big (laughs) J.M. He appeared in the first season as well. So there you go. Love that. So, until recent years The Citizens Theatre has always been A rather unassuming building At a time swamped by the Dizzying heights of tenement and high-rise Blocks Scottish set designer Bunny Christie Designed the theatre as "quote Sitting on its own, surrounded by Potholes and puddles Everything else seemed to have been pulled down Now I will get to this But the Citizens Theatre Is undergoing redevelopment at the minute But <laughs> Until then, you could easily go past it and have no clue what it was because it is literally it was joined on to what I believe is the, like the procurator fiscal's office in the, the Gorbals. It always weird. felt like a
1: weird spot.
0: It's a very it's literally in a it's just in a weird literally in the middle of a suburb like it's yes. bizarre. It's so strange. So the Victorian auditorium has been painstakingly retained from its initial life. Did you know some fun facts? It is the last theatre in Glasgow to retain its Victorian mechanism substage.
1: Oh, that's cool.
0: Yeah. And the Victorian paint frame is actually still utilized to paint stage cloths on. Love that. Yeah.
1: If it's not so, broken in- don't replace it.
0: Don't fix it, exactly. So um, in 1977, in the light of neighbouring demolition work, the citizens' staff themselves arranged a stay of execution in order to rescue much of the Victorian works and parts of the theatre, including the six statues that sat atop the columns outside the theatre. So the theatre's most recent foyer, which was designed in 1989, perhaps had some of the theatre's most iconic images. Including the former facade statues, which were just chilling in the middle of the theater bar, um, mouldered plastered elephants painted in quite a startling shade of neon pink, in their time, and also a stained glass window which was retained from the theater's royal princesses days. So in twenty nineteen, work began on a new front and back of house space um, around the original Victorian theater. It was very strange when the demolished. Kind of the front and the surroundings, and you literally had this little box, yeah. <laughs> which is the original, the original theatre. Because it's quite a small theatre, like it's not big um, anymore. Um, it's very intimate, it's quite a creepy theatre actually, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So. Oh, This going on. Connects to my point. So for all it being a strange little Victorian theatre surrounded by recent, until recent years by perceived poverty and lawlessness, it has attracted some of theatre's most lauded artists. The Citizen Theatre was, and still is, perceived as a place of innovation and unconventionality. One is likely to see a Shakespeare placed in rent alongside an exp- experimental verbatim piece in Citizen's Theatre repertoire. You can see a lot there Yeah And I've seen a lot of weird stuff in my time going to that theatre So Just because we're indulging the sets here A list of some actors That have appeared at this most unusual venue Include people such as Pierce Brosnan Kieran Hines Ripper Everett Tim Roth McLeish's pal Celia Emery Love her (laughs) Love her Mark Rylands, Tim Curry, Alan Rickman, David Heyman, Robbie Coltrane, Stanley Baxter, Una McLean, David Heyman, Gary Oldman and Glenda Jackson. So
1: Quite the array.:
0: Quite the array. And I think that's the weirdest thing about it, is that it's literally, particularly a lot of these actors appeared there in like the sort of 70s- to 80s-ish round of it then. And like, the Gorbles were still pretty not nice in the 70s and 80s. Like, it was still okay, it wasn't a slum district but you had all your high-rises, it was still like a place that was like perceived to have like lawlessness and gang culture and it just it wasn't good. And in the middle of it, you have got like this literally world-renowned theatre where these actors who were like incredible in their own field were tripping over each other to try and work With the Citizens Theatre Company And it's just It's very weird (laughs) It's just so It's just just strange A resplendent Victorian theatre Is not without the odd ghost story Or two Of course That's That's why we go to these places So a staff member has said That whilst trapped in the upper circle During a blackout They were led to safety By following the distinctive figure of a monk
1: What's he doing there?
0: Not entirely sure what the monk was doing there, but we shall not question it. A Stanley Baxter in costume. Yeah. (laughs) So there have also been sightings of a white lady dressed in Victorian costume that is said to move between the Dress Circle bar and the Circle Studio dressing rooms. So if you're on the upper floor, look out for her. Okay. Um, during the nineteen seventies, patrons were said to have inquired about the costumed actor that sat in the balcony and stared at them during the performance. So, lovely, bit bit weird. And then there is dressing room seven, which is said to be haunted by its past inhabitants. Yeah, Spooky. and should you find yourself in the upper circle. You may find yourself visited by the ghost of a strawberry cellar girl who is actually said to be the most sighted of the resident
1: citizens' ghosts. Was that what they did before ice cream?
0: Possibly. Possibly. Maybe. You know the Victorians, they, they were into a lot of weird stuff, so. Just Ripe strawberries, ripe. About that? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, So Bridie died of a stroke on the 29th of January 1951 in Edinburgh and he was buried in Glasgow's western necropolis. So although his major legacy is arguably establishing of the Citizens Theatre and her resident company, his contributions went further than that. So Bridie was actually the first chairman of the Scottish Arts Council and he was also one of the key players in establishing the Edinburgh Festival. So he did a lot for the sort of Scottish art scene And in 1950, Brady founded the Glasgow College of Dramatic Art And the institution became part of what is known today as the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland
1: Oh, nice
0: Yeah So um, Brady effectively kind of sort of founded the Department of the Conservatoire and Glasgow University students today can still visit the Brady Library, which is housed within the Glasgow University Union. So, not only does it honour his talent with the written word, but it also harks back to his student days himself at the ancient institution. And that is a story of Dr. Osborne Henry Maver and Glasgow Citizens Theatre.
1: Love that. It's funny because at the sit, like those statues that would be in the foyer when you went in, I. Always thoroughly enjoyed them. Didn't realize that they were part of an original facade. High yeah, above. so they were, they were. That's cool. Yeah.
0: yeah, So they were part of the royal princesses, um, right up until like into the mid twentieth century, and it was it was like surrounding demolition work. That the sets were like we need to save what we can before they <laughs> before they build the their new foyer. So that is why because mm. it was always. I think that was one of the quirky things about the Citizen's Theatre is it was just, it was, you didn't, you didn't realise you were walking into a theatre. It was, it just, the sets has been under redevelopment for, uh, since about what, 2019 maybe? I yeah, think it, it feels like a long time. It's been a long time and it's just been pushed back and pushed back, obviously pandemic hit, etc. But it does feel like it's been such a long time since the, the
1: theatre's actually been open. The last thing I saw there was that Macbeth production And then the other thing I'm trying to remember what the name of it is It's like Miss Miss something something And it's about a upper class woman Who's in the kitchen having a chat with the slightly lower class man Miss
0: Julie
1: Miss Julie and I saw yeah. that and it was The gal that fancied Benedict Cumberbatch and Sherlock
0: Oh yeah I don't know what you're talking about
1: Um ah she played Miss Julie and it was very good except um she talked about getting her dress stuck in her knickers in the script and she said she got her knickers stuck stuck in her dress and the rest of the show I was like <laughs> she messed up alone line. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: oh my god that's so funny she um, got her
1: her knickers stuck in her dress it was funny
0: oh it's so funny The theater is like immaculately preserved. The Citizens Theater also has this really distinct smell, and I can't describe it, but it just has a really, really distinct, almost musty, but in like a good way.
1: Yeah, just kind of of
0: scent it. Old,
1: yeah. Just how old buildings sometimes smell. Old books and stuff.
0: Oh, it's just so cool, and also because I saw a lot of their Christmas stuff there as well because the sets are a bit anti-pantomime and they do more gothic christmas like shows and they're so good i remember i saw a production of a christmas carol when i was like six and i was terrified let me tell you (laughs) um but like and they also did, did like a great production of like beauty and the beast and it was just like so good and like proper it was really dark and like i was like yes this is what it should what it should be like that's what these fairy tales are like
1: as always please pop along to our instagram and our facebook give us likes and follows there we post all of our corresponding photos up there every week and it just gives you a nice little visual to go along with the story along with our magic hat mondays where you can give your responses to our questions Our We Love a Link Wednesdays, where we join links between different stories that we've told. And of course, Fun Fact Friday, where you will learn some kind of fun Scottish fact.
0: If you happen to have a question for the magical hat, if you either email us or message it over, it will be written down on a little sheet of paper, folded up and go straight into the hat where it may feature on future episodes. Also if you happen to own an Apple device, if you could head on over to that little purple logo of Apple Podcasts and leave us a little review, it would be much appreciated and helps us in the massive podcast algorithm of the
1: world. And thank you for listening to A Wee Bit Gothic. Was that gothic? A wee bit. I can't baptized. You were talking about... Oh. With... Uh, yes. <laughs> Our own theme tune Oh my playing. God,
0: the chaotic energy this evening though.
1: The Allen family had Poe baptised into the Episcopal Church in 1812. John church, sorry? Episcopal? Episcopal. Episcopal. Oh my Episcopal. God. Episcopal. <laughs> it's a word I can't say. Trixie Trixie is currently looking like she's seen a ghost.
0: Oh my god, she does! Look at, oh my god, that is an intense staring going on there.
1: She's fully thinking that someone's coming in. Nobody's coming in, baby. I mean, Matt could be coming in, I just haven't heard him, but. Fair. We'll find out. That's fair. Oh my god. There's nobody there, Bob. There's nobody there. She doesn't understand English, so it's pointless. She doesn't. But I'm
0: sure she appreciates the sentiment nonetheless. My cat did that other night. That she was sitting next to me, and all of a sudden she just sat up and was looking at the door behind me. And I was like, "What are you looking at?" And she kept looking at me as if she was going, "Do you not see that too?" And I was like, "What are you looking at? <laughs> <laughs> what do you see?"
1: <laughs> it's just what you want from an animal. It's just to make the just place you're scared your the feel crap scary. out
0: of you. She's like, "Hello, yeah. I'm like Charlie. What do you look at?" <laughs>
1: I don't see Shirley it too. Trixie, the psychic cats. <laughs> oh, you're a good Oh sausage. my
0: god, they'd make such a good duo.
1: A good like detective duo like Sherlock and Holmes. Oh. No Sherlock and Holmes, for God's sake. <laughs> Sherlock and Holmes is just one person.